Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm going to be speaking today with Rob Johnson. He's president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and host of the podcast Economics and Beyond. And you can learn more at, okay, this is all one word, INET, I-N-E-T, that's Institute for New Economic Thinking, ineteconomics.org, ineteconomics.org. On Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, science, environment, health, business, all and more, but all because I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show airs as specials on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn. And podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, most major podcast sites, and at my site, terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, terrencemcnally, one word, dot net. The last time that Rob Johnson and I spoke for this show was November 5th, 2020, two days after the polls had closed but before the presidential election had been called. And when I anticipated that the presidential election might not be resolved by the time we were set to have this conversation back then, I emailed Rob, offering the possibility we postponed till we knew who'd won. And he very directly declined, pointing out that our challenges as a nation both precede and go beyond the election of Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And I, I say that to really begin. I'm going to read you now some of what I wrote um, right on election night in 2020 prior to that conversation and a year prior to this one so that we can just sort of set a context of what we were expecting, what we were hoping, what we were fearing, that sort of thing. So we can do a little bit of a how are we doing? So this is what I had written uh, before going to bed election night. Biden may win. But it saddens and sickens me that this election can be close. And I feel the dread weight at that point of the possibility of Trump's winning bearing down on me. Trump, the Republican Senate, the Republican governors have for the most part proven unfit. The economy and any semblance of normality, such as kids going to school, depend on getting the upper hand on the virus. Europe is showing that in the best of circumstances, that's hard to do. But there's nothing to suggest that Trump will be any more willing or able to take responsibility, responsibility at the federal level for our national response. We face some big challenges. Global health of humans and the rest of nature, climate change, nuclear war, gross inequality, and for the four years of Trump, we've ignored or aggravated most of them. And we're going to go through more tough times. Remember, I'm writing this 
the night of the election in 2020, even just in terms of the pandemic and the economy, but add natural disasters, fires, police brutality, urban unrest, and the survival of democracy itself. We need to come together to deal with both our existential crisis and our tough times. Obama was elected to lead the nation and the economy out of the crash. Biden, if he triumphs, will be asked to lead the economy out of the pandemic. But Biden fails if the best he can do is deliver Obama 2.0. I found this quote on the website of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. When the economic system breaks, it spares no one. But such a crisis can provide an opportunity to work together to create real lasting change. This is one of those times, a once in a lifetime opportunity to transform economics as we know it. Now, that quote was referring to the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. Well, it turns out that we actually had another once in a lifetime opportunity present itself and that was the pandemic. Two once in a lifetime opportunities in less than a decade. Under Obama, we did not transform economics. Not only that, we didn't respond in any meaningful way to most of the people who were hurting. Many of these people had felt left behind long before the crash, and enough of them turned out at the polls in the Rust Belt in 2016 to elect Donald Trump. So those were words written election night 2020. I read them now to set the context for today's conversation recorded when Biden has been president for just over a year. I want to talk with Rob, not so much about how the administration is doing, though that matters and we'll touch on it, but even more about how society is doing. How much better or worse are we at dealing with the crises we face? What have we learned even in the last year about what it's going to take to turn things around? The U.S. as a society seems broken to me. If broken means unable to solve critical problems, and it's bigger than politics, it's bigger than economics, and some of what I want to talk about with Rob is how deep is it? How broad is it? How did it get broken? And what will it take to fix it? Rob Johnson has been a player among the elites, but he's also a plain-spoken, passionate critic of an economic, financial, and political system that leaves too many behind. He previously served as chief economist of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, was an executive producer of the Oscar-winning documentary Taxi to the Dark Side, was a management director at Soros Fund Management, and is now the president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and host of the podcast Economics and Beyond. Welcome, Rob Johnson, again to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Well, Terrence, it's a pleasure to be here with you, and uh, I was delighted to look through your crystal ball from November of 2020 and see how much foresight you brought to the table. I'm looking forward to more of it today. Yeah. Um, you know, I like listeners to get a feel for the people. I, I say we don't, we don't interview books or projects. We talk to people. So people behind the ideas and the work. And I'm going to throw you a curve. I know there's a segment of your life and career that doesn't show up in the bio. Um, very often, and that's your time in the music business. I want you to just tell me a little bit about your time in the music, what you did, and what you learned that stays with you in the work you do today. Okay, well, that's that's a fascinating challenge. I'll start with, in growing up in Detroit, I have a father, his name was Arthur Johnson, who was a jazz pianist and a physician, 
He had various patients, famous Motown uh, artists and so forth. Uh, he was very involved in the jazz scene. My mother was a choral singer with for holidays and so forth with the Detroit Symphony and became their development director. So if you said to me, what did I learn? When I came home from sports practice, I'd take a shower. I'd sit at the top of the steps. Dad's on the piano. Mom's in the kitchen. She's singing along. I could tell, can I ask for an increase in my allowance? The car keys. Report a bad test or report card. I could feel from the music where we were. And the music was more truthful than words. And so that, what you might call spirit compass, was a very, very big part of my childhood. And I got very involved in the music scene. Obviously, Motown music was there in Detroit, but even the British invasion in rock, I'm talking about late 60s, early 70s, uh, you know, and you would hearken back to the blues. So a little bit later in my life, when I left the financial industry, I set up a blues label. And, and the uh, I was very fortunate to meet and work with a man named Jim O'Neill, who founded Living Blues Magazine. He had founded Rooster Blues, and I could work with him. I bought some masters from him, and then we worked on a whole variety of things. Uh, some new artists at the time, uh, Willie King, who won all kinds of W.C. Handy Awards for Best New Artists, and his song Terrorized was written as he watched 9-11, but it was a song about how his people had been terrorized and we didn't have the sympathetic reaction that you were seeing for the people that were victimized in the buildings and there were all kinds of dilemmas in that uh, i worked with a genius artist who was a very controversial creature ike turner in his comeback and uh, he made a record which we called here and now and then he made a subsequent record some of the masters came from us where he won a grammy just in 2007 for best traditional blues record it was on another label because i had closed my label by the time but what i what i learned about that was redemption this is a guy i'm not apologizing for what he did or denying anything but i watched him take the gifts that god gave him what he could impart put himself together and get back out there. So he went through some tough times and for some reason, God willing, he won a Grammy in the last year of his life. So uh, that, I've been involved with a wonderful project in 2018, the film Amazing Grace, Aretha Franklin made in 1972, but came back to life, reconnected with Detroit, saw her, just before, a few months before she passed away, when she thought her cancer was in remission. And what I can say to you to summarize all of this is, my father was an atheist, my mother was a devout Scottish Presbyterian. I don't know where I sit on the father and the son, but when it comes to the Holy Ghost, you got Jimi Hendrix's guitar, you got Aretha's voice, you got Bob Dylan's lyrics, you got Marvin Gaye's social conscious, you got John Coltrane's horn, there are more, but I think there is a Holy Ghost. I think there is a spiritual dimension that rides right along with this guy who got trained as an economist 
and worked in which I call the mechanics of government and finance. And so it, it, it changed my lens in ways that are very powerful. So let me ask you um, any response to my introduction. You already said, you know, that you, you, you think it's a good starting point, but any, any more specifics? I think what you perceived was that an election, there might be a lesser of two evils, but there was a systemic structure that was largely broken, and there are enormous challenges on the horizon, albeit the pandemic was emerging then, but it's been more persistent than either you or I might have expected. Climate change has reared its head. And what I would say is it had reared its head long before. Uh, my friend David Fenton and all kinds of other people, Naomi Klein, others have been telling us. But what happened was with the turmoil, and I'll add January 6th to that, though that's not in your night, but with the turmoil in the politics, with the disservice to large portions of the country during globalization, automation, machine learning, and so forth, the stresses were accumulating. And once you become afraid, you become more sensitive to that which makes you more afraid. So the awareness of climate change is heightened. The, per the prescient ones that I mentioned were already there. The merchants of doubt were working the media channels for the fossil fuel industry. But everybody now, I think, is on deck and alert. The, the pandemic, in some ways, was an unmasking of all the structural flaws that we see. And as, as, as uh, I said, uh, and we said, that it does create an opportunity. And the question is, how, how, who attempts to take advantage of that opportunity? And are we able to reach deeper than usual because of the break to, uh, as we reimagine how we come out of this, do we make enough of a difference to make a difference? Yeah. Let me, let me take us back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, what I perceive is that there was a time when people on the left believed in government. I'll talk about the New Deal, FDR era through Lyndon Johnson. Faith in the Kennedy administration early on. And there were people who disagreed with that, were largely in the Republican Party. And they believed in the market. So you had uh, what you might call a romantic faith in government on the left and a romantic faith in markets on the right. What's happened in recent years as the role, I'll start with approximately the Carter administration, as the role of money in politics has become enormous. And my research director, Tom Ferguson, Benjamin Page, Martin Gillins, a lot of these scholars have really codified this. The role of money in politics led to something. There's a gentleman, a former musical artist named Stuart Zeckman, who gave a prescient podcast in 2010 where he said, an unnamed Obama official said, we can't go back to be like the No Deal. People don't believe in that anymore. And he dug into the Gallup polls that this anonymous Obama official put 
on an interview, I think on Politico or something. And in the Gallup polls, what did he find? He found that the people on the left didn't trust the government because he thought it was captured. That the role of money in politics had overridden the legitimacy of governance. And that has really scrambled our deck, bringing it closer to the surface now, or, or the present, not the surface. Uh, let me, let me jump in, and, if, I, yeah. if I may. I don't want to lose, don't lose your train of thought, but two thoughts that have come to me so far. One is that one of the things that uh, we were told was that president elections, that, that the, the influence of television in presidential elections happened in 1960 when the debate between Kennedy and Nixon were televised. I think the real revolution of television happened a bit later when television advertising became the key component of campaigns because that skyrocketed the money and you had Republicans whose uh, platforms, when they used to have them, were aligned with their funders. So the Republicans could go for touchdowns. They were doing their funders bidding. Democrats, funders became the same. Clinton was the strongest one to go in that direction. Although, as you say, once the price of, of campaigns changed, all Democrats began leaning in that direction. And yet they espouse principles. And this is very much that, that thing that, that, that we both have, have, have noticed and we'll talk about more. They, they espouse principles that weren't necessarily their funders, but were more the people. But if, you, if you're split that way, you don't go for touchdowns. You satisfy yourself with getting to the 20-yard line and kicking a field goal, and <laughs> you end up losing. Go ahead. Yes, yes, I think you're right on target. I'll, I'll cite my friend Tom Ferguson again, his book with Joel Rogers, Right Turn, the form of the Democratic Leadership Council, the move which Clinton eventually became, uh, which you might call the candidate of their yeah. choice. And, and people can lament which you might call the immoral nature of that, but you're talking about something that's true. The structural change meant if you're going to thrive, you have to raise money. Now you've got to find donors. And that transformed the, the very nature of politics. So when you come forward, a person like Barack Obama, there was a certain magic about him when he was a candidate in 2007 and eight. I had a son who was in college at the time at Pomona College in California, and he said, Dad, your generation makes sure that Obama's going to win. I said, why is that? He said, because you guys all talk romantically about the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. He's anti-Iraq war. He sounds like a preacher. This guy's going to get elected. The young people are really going to flock to it, and so will your generation. We did. But then the money concentration of Wall Street and the bailouts, as David Sirota has recently articulated beautifully in his podcast that he made with my old friend Alex Gibney called Meltdown, which you can get on Audible for free. That changed us into an environment where, as you're saying, you're trying to kick a field goal, but you got the Tea Party on one side and Occupy Wall Street spawned on the other. Nobody's happy with field goals. And then it continues on 
Republican control of the House, role of the Senate, Donald Trump elected. I was in Detroit the night before the election in 2016, preparing for a conference that we were doing on the Friday after the election. And I, I talked to a man who used to work in a building as a security officer where my father worked. And I asked him, what do you think is going to happen in the election? He said, Mr. Johnson, when there is nothing on the menu anybody wants to order, they don't go out to dinner. There's not going to be turnout. And I said, well, you've got Trump and this. And he said, well, Trump's telling everybody the system is rigged and the big three have lost all the jobs. Very few people have talked that kind of truth. I said, okay, why don't you come out for him? Well, I'm scared of him. What about on the Clinton side? Well, they did NAFTA. They did criminal justice reform. They did welfare reform. That's not going to sell in Michigan. And as you know, Donald Trump won, I think, by 13,000 votes in the why state. Did, why didn't the bailout of the auto companies uh, play bigger in that in that vote? I've always wondered that, and you may know. <laughs> I don't know, but I heard from people who stayed there. I have a lot of friends who, like, gone to law school, gone to MBAs and stuff that work in the in the southeastern Michigan. And what they said was that the bailout of the auto industry took care of the white-collar workers but allowed some of the money to be used to build new plants in China and Mexico. Now, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't have a zoom lens on that, but that is what I kept hearing over and over and over. When Trump got nominated in Cleveland, he came to Detroit, to the Economic Club of Detroit, and he took on top management. He didn't pander to donors in that theatrical episode. Obviously, you might say in the subsequent years, because that structural system we're talking about is there, he seduced and abandoned the people that he got to support him with his tax cuts and support for the fossil fuel industry and what have you. And how would I say, it felt to a lot of people like Obama had gone to Wall Street and Trump had gone to plutocracy, both engendered a hope, neither delivered on the hope. Right, right. Well, yeah, the way I, I had thought about it last night was Obama didn't try and Trump did bait and switch. Right. Oh, that's and, right. Now, but then, and, and, and if we can, let's deal just a little bit with the Biden administration, because my third thing is the Biden platform did seem to speak to some of the pain of both, uh, not just people of color, but also white working class. The, white, the working class and the middle class, if, um, if there, you could snap your fingers and the Biden platform were enacted, they would benefit. Um, however, uh, from my perspective, and then I'll, I'll toss it to you, the precariousness of the Senate majority, if you will, 50-50 with the vice president, is a result of the past two decades of everything we've been talking about, of the Democrats not delivering for those people. So now when you come 20 years later and you say, now I'm going to deliver for you, you haven't got the backing that allows you to do it. And now that feeling that government is rigged and 
incompetent or insufficient is now reinforced. And I feel that's the moment we're kind of in now. Your thoughts on where we stand a year after where we started? I think that's right. I mean, my own intuition at the time was that someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren put a progressive platform out there, but nobody trusted that they could navigate the rapids of this system. Biden gave the feel of an awareness and caring, particularly for what you might call white middle class, what they used to call Reagan Democrats. So people thought he may be the guy that can take the Reagan Democrats back from Trump and win. But once he won, he inherited the system that you talked about and what you might call the stalemates, build back better, can't change the filibuster, all the kind of things that are taking place. Uh, it, it's demoralizing the public. This current debate about whether congressional officials working on policy ought to be able to buy stocks in the realm where they are the architects of what will be the rules of the game or the enforcement is also, it's extremely demoralizing. And it also makes you feel almost like the politicians are tone deaf about what angst is out there. And, and, and what, what kills me, Rob, is that the people that, that like Pelosi, let's say, you know, just and, and others, the people in power in the Democratic Party, they've made enough damn money. They're old. They've made plenty. To right now come out for that policy full force would be such a smart thing to do. No, it's it's a rest, rest, restoration of ethical balance. Is on how would I say it's it's what the doctor ordered in part. It's not sufficient, but it's a dimension of it, and it, it's symbolic of a healthier sense of governance. And I, the other thing that I find very very painful. You know, coming from Detroit creates some of the echoes here. I always tell people I grew up in the city that America divorced when it needed help. But uh, when I see evidence that INET has fostered in some of his research about let's call the geography of up and down in the economy, in the localities where there's a downturn, Obviously, surveys of anxiety about health and future, uh, economic prosperity, concern about for your children, rises up in the surveys. When you look at the geographic map in the United States, and I'll go beyond that in a moment, but when you look at that geographic map, what you see is the places where people are anxious about employment security are also the places where racial animosity explodes. People blame others when they're scared and the destruction my friend and scholar peter timmon wrote a book about the decline of the middle class and what he essentially said is because of automation other things we transform to a service-based economy with a service-based economy there are two kinds of services low margin services what they call like flipping hamburgers or whatever, and high margin services that require an education. So in the old days, people like the great Nobel laureate 
W. Arthur Lewis talked about the migration from the farm to the cities and the plants. The Wizard of Oz is a parable of that whole thing. But you were moving to high productivity. Today, the movement from low to high productivity services is through the education system. But when you had all this racial animosity, all of the turmoil impeded the formulation of a national education platform, what we call public schools, so that everybody could have a chance to go up that escalator. And this was very interesting to Dr. Peter Temin, because as he said in some panels and wrote that with INET was working on, he said, this is, this is really a problem because about 70% of the population is going to be in these low margin services. And these white people are destroying their own ladder because they're distracted in a way that, you know, I've talked about Nancy Frazier in a wonderful illuminating pamphlet talked about the substitution of identity politics for focus on economic structure of which the education system is a part. Yeah, let, let's let's jump to Nancy Fraser. Uh, uh, you know, there's no telling what we'll end up missing and what we'll end up covering in this hour. But uh, I, I, you recommended uh, Nancy Fraser's. Um, uh, you call it a pamphlet because it's a 63-page book. Um, it's called The Old is Dying and the New Cannot Be Born, and I, in turn, recommend it to listeners and viewers because I feel she clarifies and names some aspects of our political and economic situation, which I'd been talking about sort of in rougher terms. And, and she very specifically coins the term progressive neoliberalism. And that's, that, that's what came with Clinton and Blair in the UK and so on, and and Gore and the Democratic Leadership Council. And what you did was, going back to what we said before, your, your funders are now Wall Street and, and big corporations and wealthy individuals. And Silicon but, Valley. And Silicon Valley, exactly, Hollywood. Oh, well, yeah, Hollywood, yeah, exactly. And yet you, you speak, as you said, identity politics. Um, women, uh, gender issues, and race, and so on. But it means that you can make progress socially, you can make progress culturally, but you won't really change the money issues. And, and at the same time, you're not changing the money issues for the white, uh, lower, uh, working in lower middle class, and they see that you are making gains for the other. And that goes back to uh, Arlie Hoax chilled strangers in their own land in which she has that wonderful image of the deep story that she discovered in Southern Louisiana, which is that I'm in line for the American dream. I'm not getting anywhere. And you, Obama, Democrats, etc., are helping other people break in front of me. And, and so you, it's, it's such a, well, on the one hand, I look at it, you look at it, and we say this is such a losing strategy, and yet it completely took over the uh, the Democratic leadership for two decades. Yeah. 
There's also a book uh, that I thought illuminated this very well, Sarah Kenzior, a uh, book, uh, I think it was called The View from Flyover America, where the coastal regions were prospering and the the Midwest, the core, the Mid-South were migrating towards Donald Trump out of despair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I suppose you take it one step further and you go to, you know, the folks who wrote about the uh, deaths of despair, the ones who didn't just vote for Trump, but died of obesity and opioid addiction and alcoholism from the same disappointment, desperation, and just a feeling that you no longer matter, you no longer belong. And the media has been no help at all in this. No, <laughs> but let's talk Angus just a little. Deaton, some Angus Deaton and Case. That's uh, right. A woman named Shannon Monat, who was at Syracuse for a time. And they, they, by the way, I said I'd take this a little bit internationally. When I look at these geographic studies of despair, where economies suffer largely because of machine learning, automation, globalization, or austere state and local budgets, you see things happen like Brexit in the UK, Marie Le Pen in France, the AFD party in Germany, or a comparison of how Donald Trump did against Hillary Clinton versus the last time that two challengers were running against each other, and that was when George W. Bush was running against Al Gore. And the places where Trump's delta was biggest were the same places that were suffering from the diseases of despair. And, there, and, and, the, and the analog in the other countries fits like a glove, too. And, and the thing is, you, despair can lead to suicide. It can lead to self-destruction. But if you think that the only time you get to express your despair is in an election, it leads to anger. Right? You don't take it out on yourself on that one election day that comes up every two to four years. You take it out and, and, and you vote for Trump. Um, when Nancy Fraser uh, analyzes, she says what we've been saddled with on the uh, on the Democratic side is progressive neoliberalism and neoliberalism. I, I'll let you give us a, a quick definition and then let me return to to what I'm saying. So you're the economist among us. Well, I guess when when people talk about neoliberalism, it's joining the market romance. It's not like we're looking at the ends that people experience. We're looking at the means, which is the use of the market, the illusions that it creates freedom, where those in poverty are not entirely responsible. There, there's a notion they call economic justice. Economic justice says in the literature you have a certain level of productivity for which you are responsible to cultivate through education, disciplines, good nutrition, what are all the elements of it. And you get paid what economists call your marginal product. And that's economic justice. If you get paid more than your marginal product, 
That's called a subsidy. If you get paid less than your marginal product, that's called exploitation. Now, there's a problem. Your marginal product is grown in the context of social institutions for which we are all collectively responsible. And so it's not as if you can blame the victim when certain regions of the country get devastated while the wealthiest winners who used to be accused of tax evasion have lobbied and now keep their money offshore and we call it tax avoidance and then we say we can't afford it in the United States. So the collective systemic design has an awful lot to do with whether your position of productivity and economic justice allows you to support a family, your health, your life, etc. In other words, the illusion that neoliberalism fosters or, right. or contributes and to and is that on. the market is providing that vitality and efficiency and that there is no collective responsibility. And that's a convenient ideology for a progressive Democrat who needs to go raise money in order to get reelected. Right. And I, I think offline, I, I've shared this with you. I, I recently interviewed in the last few months, both um, uh, Branko Milanovic, econo economist who's, who's great focused on uh, I know he's done a lot of work with him. Yeah, he's great. And Rebecca Henderson at the business school at Harvard. And both of them said that when um, the raising of stockholder value becomes the primary goal of corporate action rather than in other countries and in other and in other times it's been much broader than that but milton friedman suggested in 1970 that it should just be this the the stock price when you do that it becomes logical in pursuit of that goal to rig the rules you play by. The return for the stockholder is going to be improved if you can use your wealth and your influence to rig the rules. And that's what corporations have done. It was, of course, accelerated with Citizens United. But at that point, capitalism has no chance of fulfilling an illusion of fairness. Well, the idea of capitalism is that it is embedded in a democracy that governs it to give it its moral legitimacy. And when the servant becomes the master, when you have the inversion, as I guess Sting had that song wrapped around your finger, uh, then the moral legitimacy of the system breaks down and the side effects, the results, the despair, the, the unresponsiveness of the system becomes rampant. Okay, and we're a little past that's... the midpoint here. Let me tell people this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking today with Rob Johnson. He's president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and host of the podcast Economics and Beyond. And you can learn more about all of what we've been talking about and more at ineteconomics.org. INET, Institute for New Economic Thinking, INET Economics, all one word, dot org. Um, 
I was going to say, so, so we, what, what Nancy Fraser says is there's progressive neoliberalism, which we've kind of, you, you pander or not pander, you may even deliver on social and cultural aspects um, to, uh, as we said, uh, people, you know, on, on gender issues, on, on uh, Latino, uh, black women and so on, all of that stuff, but you don't deliver where it really matters. Um, and then she's, she, the rival is reactionary neoliberalism, the old-fashioned one that makes no bones about who, who's, you know, what it, what its, what its uh, vision is and what it's trying to do. And she says that what can deliver us from this current situation we're in, and she says she doesn't think that reactionary neoliberalism could ever bring along the folks that the Democrats are serving with their identity politics, but that if you had a transformed and revitalized progressive uh, set of policies, you might be able to bring people who were the Trump voters, the Reagan Democrats over. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, let me let me start with something that really sticks in my craw. 400 years and slavery in the United States is the absolute contradiction of our founding principles that's most vivid. And repairing that, whether you call it reparations or what, is necessary to our rebalancing. But we are in an era where while that mission is essential, when I look at our prison industrial system and all that, it's a, it's a nightmare. When I look at, the and I, my friend Peter Temin has a book coming out shortly, INET series, Cambridge University Press, called Never Together, about all of the pushback to refute racial progress that's taken place since the Reconstruction after the Civil War. And it's, it's really a haunting manuscript to read. But what, I'm, what I want to bring this to is all of that is part of justice. But when everybody else's ship is sinking too, they're not going to say, you can take care of them while I drown. You've got to do something much more broad-based, which includes that necessary condition. And what I don't like on what I'll call the hard right is how they demonize people who've suffered because they're not being carried by the agenda that relates to the necessary reparation of, of 400 years of crime. As a friend of mine, former NBA basketball player Isaiah Thomas said, we shouldn't be talking about human rights, we should be talking about birthrights that all humans have, regardless of their ethnic or racial background. And my sense is that we are in this place where the, the pain and the fear is so large that we're splitting further rather than healing. And the danger that I see now with the U.S. at the center of a world system, with China growing up in terms of its prosperity and its power and its military, when I see all of these tensions related to environment and everything else, 
the danger of fear leading to an authoritarian alternative rather than the healing in an inclusive democratic alternative is upon us. And I think, as you and I have focused on in the earlier parts of this conversation, the role of money in politics, the role in money in who gets appointed to the courts, and whether you're dealing with Argentine sovereign debt in New York courts by judges who were appointed because hedge fund managers wanted them, or whether you're talking about anything related to voter representation, what's okay about gerrymandering or not. The struggle to disenfranchise for concentrated powerful interest benefit is terrifying. And people can see this, the struggle going on in plain sight. So I do think that the fear, and we got a taste of it from Donald Trump, the fear, when that man runs around the country and says the system is rigged, if you look at the ads, you can find them on YouTube of his last message that was played during that Cubs versus Cleveland World Series when the Cubs finally won the World Series. And the next day, which was right before Election Day, it was a Sunday and a Monday. And he is saying, and the American people are the only ones that can rise up to, to defeat this rigged system, as he's showing pictures of the Chinese with Hillary Clinton, of people like George Soros, of people like um, Goldman Sachs executives. And he is painting a picture of him being their warrior. And then, as you said, when he got acclimated to the system, he seduced and abandoned the people he inspired. So he found, he found a taste of the disease to surf on, but he didn't heal it. And if we don't get into the healing business now, with climate change requiring us to both heal and massively transform the economy, and, what I, and I want to say one last piece, when you have to do something as large as climate change, the scale of the transformation terrifies people. People from West Virginia say, I saw what happened to Cleveland and Detroit. Why should I join this romance when you guys are going to leave us behind and crush us? In other words, the resistance to the obvious dangers of climate come from the people who don't trust the system to create transformational energy so that we're all better off. Yeah, a couple of reflections from what you said. One was that, well, it, it all comes down to the sort, same sort of thing, really, is that I've often felt that we now, as I said in the intro, face crises that range from the really critical to the existential. Um, and, and, you know, I enumerate them previously in, in, these, in these conversations, climate change, pandemic, and future pandemics, uh, economic injustice, racial injustice, uh, and um, the nuclear weapons, the bigger and the and the and the frag, fragility of democracy itself. The bigger the crisis, the more we need to come together, and yet the crises are feeding tribalism fear, all of that sort of thing. And, and this tension between 
how people are responding to what they feel and what's needed to actually respond as a nation or as a global society to what we face are, are pulling, pulling apart. I wanted to say just one other thing that I'd realized as you were speaking, and then let's talk about what might help, what might begin to move us in the right direction. And one was that as difficult as the civil rights advances of the 1960s were, and we, we know the, pic, the pictures we saw, we know the mistreatment, we know the divides in society that were taking place, the country was doing pretty well. The middle class was living a good life. You felt your kids were going to have a better life than you did. Your kids were going to have more education than you did. You, And so the fact that we could handle a huge problem like that in as much as we did partly rested in the fact that the need to scapegoat the African-American was less felt by less people. Let, or you know what I'm saying. Well, they Both didn't see it as a zero-sum game. That's they right. They saw us on an escalator. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And those were the biggest advances we made in the 20th century, you know, were because... And now, when the last 50 years have hollowed out the possibilities for those people, now you try to solve critical problems and you run into what we're talking about. Resignation, anger, tribalism, fear, etc. How... I think about this a lot. You think about this a lot. How are we going to be able to move together to solve some of this? It's, we're talking about systemic change, political, economic, social and cultural, yes, but political and economic, uh, it seems to me, hand in glove, um, are working against our best fortunes rather than for them at this point. Yeah, I think there are lots of dimensions to this. Uh, one, which you're a wonderful counterweight to, is what kind of information do people get about the possibilities and the dangers? If you say universities are dependent on big corporate laboratories and wealthy donors, if you say the mainstream media is dependent upon advertisers, if you say the arts are dependent upon big institutional companies that sponsor tours because people don't make monies from CDs and stuff anymore. They make it from their, their live act and being on the road and selling their merchandise. When you have this unbridled, non-disclosed thing called a super PAC that the courts have legitimated and the legislature as you described earlier, because of TV advertising and so forth, has to go forward. I remember when I were I started on Capitol Hill working with Pete Domenici in the Republican Senate Budget Committee. And I remember sitting one day with the late Bob Dole talking. And I talked about whether there should be campaign contributions on the public budget for anybody running for president or senate and whether or not the people who have licenses for television, cable television, radio, ought to have to have public service space allocated. And where I got to in this conversation was not about freedom and democracy, 
It was about concern about fiscal discipline, because if everybody had to sell all kinds of boondoggle projects in order to raise money for their election, the public is going to get billed more than they would if they became collectively the sponsors of the election. And it's very thoughtful, but didn't think we could pull it off. He thought that the lobbyists and others could kill it, and it's not a bill that we could ever create. But these structural things that you talked about, this was in uh, 1984, 85, 86 kind of window, uh, are saying to me, money in politics, money in the media, fracting education towards credentializing. Yeah, one thing that people may not, I just want to jump in on the edge. One thing that people may not realize, although if you have uh, kids in college, you may, um, is that the percentage of what public colleges get from the taxpayer as a part of their budget has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. The, the heyday under Clark Kerr of the California system as the model for the world, those were public systems. And between tuition, which was almost nothing, it was mostly paid for by the taxpayers. And now most of the, a, a majority of the budget of public schools is from corporations. That changes the institution. That changes what students are getting. That changes what we can hope for from education. I think the uh, California system in its vitality is now being replaced by California administrators and so forth saying we have to go take out-of-state students and we got to take foreign students because they ain't enough to help us get down the tracks. And uh, yeah. so the, the, the pressures on deans and boards of these universities. Well, and also just that, the, that much of the research is funded by the people that you would hope would not have their hands in that research so that that research could be unbiased, really, and move us forward. And if, the, the re if, if a great deal of the research is funded by the people that it might have to tinker with or it might have to... Um, you know, change their way of doing business, uh, we're in trouble. So, so it's interesting. So what you've said is money in politics, money in education, money in the arts creates its own self-fulfilling sort of system, which has taken us to where we are today. I'd say correcting that, number one. And even before that, I go after the super PACs and Citizens United decision. We've got to get to the place where we disclose what the money's doing. So it can be monitored and revealed and debated and allowing that hidden power scenes to prevail is which Michael the degree of corruption. If if incumbents are funded by these structures we want to change or do away with, how will we be able to do that. And I'm sure that's what Bob Dole was saying when he said, I don't think it'll happen. That's very tricky because what you're saying is an incumbent has an advantage. They have policy they can sell. So a challenger comes in and you're saying, let's change the law and you guys got to vote for it that puts you at more risk of That's not likely to succeed. But the alternatives we've talked about dread authoritarian uh all kinds of 
ways of suppressing representation and suppressing voting participation. I don't know. I, I don't know where those things lead. So we're pretty much near the end of this, Rob, but uh, we've 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 opened up a lot of uh, problems and kind of uh, and 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 put forward a, a, a very challenging solution. What what is either I mean, you're kind of where you come down to as, as you go to sleep each night thinking about this stuff or as you get up in the morning thinking, where, where do you, in your, in your gut, in your heart, where do you think where is our path to actually solving some of this, which hmm. given the crises we've talked about is, is, um, is serious business for us, for our children and for the rest of the planet? Yep. I think that we are in a place where each individual in our republic has to start with resisting their own temptation to rage from fear. That, that's a building block. I think that we have to collectively, including the very powerful, look at the role of money in politics and in what type of information we're exposed to and I think we have to collectively explore the dangers which you cited earlier. Nuclear war, Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, is a beautiful portrait of an unnecessary risk to life on Earth. The areas related to the pandemic and health. One of the things that haunts me about the pandemic is I have friends who are in the anti-vaccine camp. I'm saying, and you and I might agree, I don't want you to hurt me and me to hurt you. They're saying, I'm not going to let the pharma industry make money hurting my body when they never tell me what the side effects are until somebody gets damaged. They control the politics. So I think there's a lot of diagnosis. I'm a doctor's son before remedy, but we have to come at it constructively in the spirit of the, the lives of our children and grandchildren. Climate, nuclear war, the allocation of money for elder care, the allocation of money for domestic broad-based prosperity and vitality and education, and the coercive role of money sits at the center of all of this. What I often say in my own podcast is we suffer from the commodification of social design, enforcement, and implementation. We, these are not commodities. They are public goods in a healthy republic. Yeah. Yeah. And necessities for a healthy republic. Yes, absolutely. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, it's a formidable challenge. Second, I'm not I... talking about some, you know, fantasy that's an easy road out. But I think we have to embrace it now because the dangers vis-a-vis -vis climate, nuclear war, social unrest, authoritarian alternative are very, very powerful. And let me throw just one other thing out there. And then I'm going to wrap this up, which is that given the 
existential crises we may face in terms of climate change. If democracy and de democratic countries prove unable to deal with it and China, because of its authoritarian ability to pivot and mobilize on a dime, is, is, is who we all end up relying on to save us, then what have we done as the stewards of democracy? Um, uh, you know, it, 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 I think there's a level of this that people just don't get of, of how precarious a position There's a wonderful debate going on in British Columbia. Joel Wainwright and Jeffrey Mann have written a book called Climate Leviathan, which I would recommend. And Seth Klein, Naomi Klein's brother, wrote a book called The Good War. And what they've gotten into in their explorations and conversations is something like war preparation overriding the market, setting the incentive using the market ingredients, meaning companies and firms and knowledge and engineering, may, may be necessary, but it's got to be guided by government. The other side of the debate is the fear that that is a conduit to an authoritarian transformation. And the, so the, those dilemmas, these three individuals I mentioned, are exploring in a very deep and vivid and serious way. And it's worthy of, uh, how do I say, paying attention to their thinking. Okay. We, we, we could obviously go on for a long time. Um, for, but we'll bring it to a close. Again, Rob is president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and host of the podcast Economics and Beyond. And you can learn more at INET Economics, all one word, I-N-E-T economics.org. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, Go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, terrencemcnally, one word, dot net, or a world that just might work, dot com. They're the same website. If you want to get my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on and what we're going to talk about, and I usually put in about 10 relevant, timely articles, uh, not necessarily of that week's conversation, but of what we cover on this program, um, you can email me at temcnally at mac.com or sign up at my site. You can also sign up to, to, uh, to subscribe to it on most of the podcast sites, Apple Podcasts and so on. You can sign up there. Um, and uh, you can find years of podcasts at my site or at any of the major podcast sites, as I said, uh, Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer, you name it. You can also follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. And thanks to Kiana Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners and viewers, please enjoy this and share this widely. Thank you. And Rob Johnson, thank you and keep up your good work. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. But I'll know my song well before I start singing